Welcome to the Way Through podcast. I'm the host, Phil King, and I'm a friend and ally of One in Six UK, a support service delivered by the charity Mankind for men yet to disclose unwanted sexual experiences. This is a podcast series talking to real survivors, sharing real stories with an aim to help those yet to disclose. We'll be discussing some of the most common challenges and issues that surface for survivors and understanding from them how they found their way through. I spent two years, like the two years after the rape, just wanting to die. That was it. I didn't want to live. There's a good number of years where I just didn't want to be here anymore. So it took time for me to get to that point of, okay, now it's time to start moving on. And the way of that was to start writing. And as I said, it wasn't for anybody else. It was for me. Stephen Hart is a West End and Broadway actor whose story Shadowed Dreamer became a one-man show running for nine months in New York. His story described his struggles with sexual abuse and HIV. Currently, Stephen uses his YouTube channel, Heart Talks, to continue telling his story and give others a space to tell theirs. In this episode, I talk to Stephen about the challenges of unwanted sexual abuse, his struggle with HIV and talking to others about his trauma. Importantly, Stephen talks about his way through and how he found his light at the end of the tunnel. So should we start off with just a little bit of an introduction, I suppose, a classic kind of blind date, who you are, where you come from, a little bit about what you do. I'm also interested as well, just a slightly random question to start us off, and maybe to set the tone for this discussion a little bit, but can you think of anything recently that you've seen or heard or experienced that's really given you a sense of hope? Okay, so I'm Stephen Hart. I'm an actor and a YouTuber. I'm originally from Glasgow. I always say that's where this weird accent comes from. But I've lived in London for 20 years now. And I suppose something that has given me hope or just made me feel, you know, something in the last couple of weeks has been the Queen's funeral. I'm not a big royalist at all, but just the way people came together and, and seeing people coming to celebrate somebody yeah, I sat there and watched it and went, wow, that's pretty amazing. And what she did was amazing, but I just, yeah, made me go, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good people out there. So. Yeah, there's some incredible, incredible positivity to take from that and optimism. There. It doesn't matter what your relationship was with the royal family or yeah. what your feeling was. I think just observing that yeah. unity, as you say, and the masses of people coming together. Yeah, it was a real community thing, wasn't it? Yeah, I would have to say I was slightly blown away by just how much it affected some people yeah actually. yeah yeah that was the other thing it was like wow it's it this is i heard of people coming from the other side of the world just to be in london to commemorate her and so it was like wow this is pretty amazing well look, thank you first of all for coming along and joining us it's wonderful to have you here you're here to share a bit about your story on this podcast series the way through perhaps we can start with that and just a little bit about your journey i suppose to, to bringing you here to to where you are today i first started talking about my story about 11, 12 years ago. I wrote a one-man show and this, well, I didn't write a one-man show. What I wrote was I started to write my story and it was completely for me. Never, ever, ever imagined sharing it with anybody. And that was the way it was meant to be. But my agent at the time had asked me what I was working on and I'd been going through a difficult time and she said, what are you working on? I said, I'm writing my story at the moment. I said, and she 
And I said, but it's just completely for me. And she said, would you mind if I read it? And I thought, that's the harm. It's good to get somebody else's opinion. And I always remember calling me at one o'clock in the morning and just saying, you need to do something with this. And that was really the start of me turning my story into my one-man show, which was called Shadow Dreamer. I went to New York and I hoped I'd get a month over there and it ran for nine months and closed off Broadway. So it was amazing to be telling my story because for so many years I'd lived under that cloud of don't tell anyone, never tell anyone. As I'd been sexually abused as a child and then in 2006 I had my drink spiked in a club and was raped and that that reminder came back, don't tell anyone. But I realised that I couldn't live. I realised that living under that cloud was killing me. And I thought by writing my story down, it would be a way of getting it out there. But obviously, I went to the total opposite extreme and put it out there completely and took it, made a one-man show out of it. So you've just cited two particular experiences there from your younger years, if you like. We'll come on a little bit into then how that, that, that sort of shaped your one-man show and you alluded to where it went but we want to talk about that in a little bit more depth later but just in terms of those experiences and those early experiences and I don't know whether you would want to single them out individually but how do you feel that those really affected you and your youth and upbringing and formative years? I think it was very difficult in a lot of ways because I grew up in a home where my mother had schizophrenia so growing up as a child with seeing that and seeing it in Full, fully fledged, you know, out there. She was, she was getting ECT treatment. She was on loads of meds, and she was. I was growing up with that anyway. So when the sexual abuse started, I felt as if it was just another. It was another thing to add to that list of things that was hard to deal with. But because there was so much else going on in my life, it, it was up there. It was definitely up there. It was. Even thinking back to it now, all these years later, I think back and remember how scared I was and how horrific it was. But at the same time, it was it was just another thing on the list at the time, you know. Uh, just to come away from my daughter being injected, it was an entirely separate thing, but it's a, it's, it reminds me a little bit of in that moment, there's a sort of reaction to the moment, but it's a norm. It's a, norm, it's a normal experience in a way at the moment for her. And when we reflect back a lot of the time, on our youth, gone through lots of experience that we can we can characterise as actually quite formative and quite shaping. But in that moment, you don't really recognise them at anything other than that's just what I'm experiencing in this moment right now, almost without any judgment. Yeah, I didn't realise that what was going on was wrong until I started growing up and seeing people around me and seeing my friends, families and that kind of thing. And then I was like, this isn't right and this isn't normal, whatever normal is for you. Yeah. And then you were able to put an end to that abuse at some point? I, I, my, my family had split apart. I was living with my adopted father and that's, the abuse was happening through his family. So I left and moved to Scotland to be with my adopted mum. So that's how it ended. But I often wonder when would it have ended, you know, if I hadn't, if I hadn't moved away. So, um, yeah. And how old were you then? I was 10. Right. So it went on from the age of about started to about five or six until the age of 10. And then you go move into a fairly significant period of your life in your teenage years. How did it affect you as a teenager growing up? I think when you grow up under the, you know, those rules of don't tell anyone, never tell anyone, that was what 
my abuser used to say to me. And that stayed with me. And even to this day, it still raises its ugly head every now and again. Definitely in those years as a teenager, it was something that was ashamed of. It was something I could never tell anybody. It was something that was wrong. And I felt as if it was my fault. I felt as if I'd done something because that's what I was told. It was my fault. Um, So I held on to that and carried it with me throughout my teenage years and well into my 20s and probably my early 30s, you know. It took a long time to start letting go of that. In what ways, it might be difficult to answer this, but in what ways do you feel that shaped your character then as a teenager and then into your sort of early adulthood? It's actually easy to answer. I think it made me very wary of people in general. I didn't trust people because I never knew. I always wondered what their what they were getting out of being friends with me was, what they were getting from me. I always thought that they wanted something and it was hard to... My friendships in my early years were very up and down because I just didn't know how to be able to create proper relationships because of what had happened to me in my younger years. So then you moved up to Scotland with your adopted mother and then began to pursue a a kind of career in acting. Yeah, yeah. So in school, kind of fell into that and suddenly thought, gosh, I enjoy this. And it's quite strange because I always remember the first show I ever did and my music teacher pushed me. My music teacher was wonderful. She knew something was going on at home, but she never asked, but she was always very supportive. And when I talked to her many years later, she said, Stephen, it was a different time. It wasn't like you could say, oh, we can see that something's going on at home, phone, child services or whatever. Um, So her way of helping was to encourage me to be in this show and take on one of the lead roles. And I always remember hearing people applauding and clapping and laughing and being involved with what I was doing. And it was the first time I ever felt that I had a place. I felt important. I felt special. And yeah, and many years later, that's what I've continued to do. It's beautiful. And so then that took you into a, did you, what happened then from an educationally perspective? Did you go then straight down and start pursuing your, your career, acting career in the big smoke? Or No, I did. It was, gosh, it was the mid 80s. So I was told I had to get a proper career and not be silly and think about doing that as a proper job. So I went into nursing. So I did hospice nursing for three years, which was amazing. Um, always wanted to be an actor and ended up walking away from my nursing to go to study acting. So then you moved down to London in 2002 and that was to pursue your acting career completely I was ready to become a proper actor yeah and you referenced earlier on second incident and a rape incident um, when you'd moved down to London and whilst I recognize you're you're here talking about those two incidents I imagine dealing with that trauma as a child and dealing with that very different trauma as an adult it'd be processed in two very different ways but I wonder if you could just talk to that experience and that incident yeah, I suppose dealing with it as a child, I was I didn't understand it as much. When I was an adult, for me personally, it was harder because I understood more. So I'd gone out with friends. We were in a bar and we were drinking and my drink was sitting at the side of me as all of our drinks were. But there was somebody sitting behind me and my friends were leaving and I was going to finish off, then go. And my drink was spiked. And I woke up in the morning and it was clear that I'd been raped and I became HIV positive from the rape as well. So there was so much, not only was the the real realisation of what had happened to me and, a, and more of an understanding than I'd had of it that, as a child. And yeah, it was a very, it was a dark, 
I spent two years just waiting to die, really. I didn't want to be here anymore. And I just, I used to pray to God every night that my heart would stop beating and that my flatmates would find me dead in the morning because I didn't want to live with what had happened. And I definitely didn't want to live with HIV and I didn't want to die from it. So it was a very tough time. I know that you've, you've um, spent a lot of time talking about this through your show, which we'll, we'll come on to in a little while. But how do you find talking about it now? Yeah, it's funny. It's I talk about it a lot, but there's always something. There's always something in what I'm saying that that stabs me in my heart a little bit every time I talk about it. I know how to deal with that now, but it's yeah, it's always painful for me. But I've tried to turn it around and make something good come from something bad. That's been my aim with the show and with everything that I've done since. And so just on that topic of being able to talk about it now, we'll talk in a moment about about your own way through and how you did manage to process this and how we thankfully find you here with us today. But do you still find that you carry any sort of anger or resentment when with you? The anger's gone. It took a long time, but it's I had to let go of it. I had to let go of it for me. I had to look at who's the most important person in this whole mess that it, it, my life had seemed, and it was me. And I knew that holding on to that anger was it was just doing me no good at all. So the anger has gone, but the pain from what had happened kind of always lingers. Not as much as it used to, but it's always there. And you know, so it's it's learning how to deal with that and carry on with that and put it in a place that's safe. Um, what happened to or the abuser in the first instance and the, the kind of perpetrator in the second? And how did you deal with that? So the abuser in the first instance died. That was that kind of closed the door on that in a way because I felt once he was dead, he couldn't do it anymore. So for me, that was it. Wasn't it? It didn't end that for me but it closed the door on it to a certain extent so yeah that was that my the rape was difficult because I know what they say I know they say don't wash away evidence but I got into the shower after I'd been raped and I stayed in there and I always say it's like you see it in the movies you scrub at your skin until it bleeds and it was yeah it was just yeah and so I had washed everything away when I went to the hospital they did the blood test they found rohypnol in my blood so that was a date rape drug at the time they, from the physical evidence, they could tell that I'd been raped, but there was no other evidence there. So it was, yeah, it was hard to deal with because I, for a number of years, I blamed myself again, as I did as a child. I must have done something as an adult that I did as a child to make it happen. That was my thinking for a number of years after the rape. So nothing, no one was ever, no one was ever caught as far as I know for the rape. So also, the, I always remember when police came, to, uh, the first thing I did when I realised I'd been raped was from the hospital. The hospital contacted the police, the police and an ambulance arrived and the police said to me, what has happened? One of the officers said, what has happened? And I said, I think I've been raped. And he said to me, but guys, men don't get raped. So for two years, I didn't call it rape. After that, I didn't talk about it a lot for two years, but I couldn't call it rape because somebody in authority had said to me, men don't get raped. So that was hard. That was really hard because I was like, what was it? If it 
because I knew what it was, but I knew in my head what it was. It was, yeah, it was difficult. It's hard to deal with that when somebody in a uniform tells you, no, you're wrong. It wasn't that. Yeah, I'm curious to know whether attitudes and mindsets have moved on at all since that was in 2006. Six, yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know whether you have a perspective on that, but it'd be interesting to know whether. Yeah, it would be interesting, actually, because when I say it now, when people hear me say it now, they go, what? Shocked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I hope that it's moved on and things have changed. If you find yourself triggered by any of the content discussed in today's episode, then please stop listening. Take care of yourself and please speak to a friend or ally and keep yourself safe. Let's talk about your way through then. What would you represent as the beginning part of that journey? I spent two years, like the two years after the rape, just wanting to die. That was it. I didn't want to live. I continued to function. I went to work. I paid the bills. I came home. I would come home every night and cry and listen to Whitney Houston and look on YouTube for somebody like me, somebody that was HIV positive, a man that had been raped, all those kind of things. And I couldn't find anybody. Not to say that there wasn't anybody. I just didn't know where to look at the time. But yeah, there was a good number of years where I just didn't want to be here anymore. So it took time for me to get to that point of, okay, now it's time to start moving on. And the way of that was to start writing. And as I said, it wasn't for anybody else. It was for me. Mm. Was there a moment, though, that you were kind of really, now I need to, I've got a choice here. I need to do something about this. Yeah, I woke up one morning and I laughed. You know, I used to talk about this in my show. And I used to say to the audience, it's okay to laugh about this. But I woke up one morning and thought, I'm so sick and tired of waiting to die because it doesn't look as if it's going to happen anytime soon. And it was literally as, and it had taken two years, two years of all I wanted was to die. And then, and then I woke up one morning and went, I'm tired of waiting for that to happen. I want more. And I don't know if I suddenly realized that I deserved more. So yeah, so it was like, I woke up one morning and it was just like, now is the time. So you started writing your show, which was in essence, a kind of autobiographical account of your story, which... I guess a lot of people in the past have also said this can be quite a therapeutic process. What do you feel you learned about, about that yourself and your story by going through that process? I learned how many different things have been sad. And in my life, there had been a lot of sadness, but there'd also been a lot of amazing things as well. And it was dealing with... I had to deal with all that sadness. I always describe it as I built this brick wall up around me over the years. It was a protection to keep people from coming too close to me because I didn't want to love too hard. I didn't want to connect too much because of I just didn't feel I didn't I think I didn't feel worth it. I held on to a lot of things from being abused as a child and also being raped as 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 an adult. So it was Writing my story, I had to take each brick down, mm-hmm. brick by brick, and it was tough. It was really tough because I spent a lot of time crying. I spent a lot of time laughing at the silly things. But, but yeah, just really experiencing my story for the first time, really. Even though I'd lived it, I had never really absorbed how powerful and how, you know, how much strength that there was in my story. So it was a real realisation of things for me. 
What support did you get through that process? Because you say you're brick by brick pulling your life apart. <laughs> Had some very deep and emotional moments. Yeah. Where did you seek support through that period? First, I didn't think I needed any support, which is usual me. I'll get on with it. I'll be fine. But I had to deal with HIV. HIV was a big thing for me because I'd grown up with it in the news and that kind of thing. I grew up in the 80s and it was there. And so that was a big thing. I had to first deal with that. So I, that was the first time I went for counselling. Went to the Terence Higgins Trust and did eight-week counselling course with them just to learn about HIV, learn about learn about how you can live a full and happy life now because so many things have changed. And it's funny, I think my support came later on from doing my show because when I did my show, I realised the power that it had for other people to tell their stories. And that kind of, it was a kind of healing process for me, seeing what good it could do. So that that's where my effect on it. Yeah, sense. I really want to ask you about that, actually. So there, there was this... You created this show as a self-reflective exercise yeah. and you mentioned it earlier. You never really anticipated ever actually sharing it with anybody. And you said your agent read it and wanted to take it to the world. What happened then at that point? What, tell us a little bit about that, that next phase of the journey. So, um, yeah, so the show suddenly, story suddenly became a show and... Yeah, before I knew it, I was going to New York. I wanted to take it far enough away <laughs> that if it was a huge disaster, it wouldn't affect my career in London. But it wasn't a huge disaster. It was something amazing and magical because I opened up an email account for people to contact me to find out when the show was next on, where it was on, all those kind of things. But I would get back to the apartment every night and there would be these stories from people that had seen the show the day before or seen the show that day. And it was just really powerful, amazing, sad, happy, sto different stories. And I realized that my story was giving people, it, it was as if it was giving them permission to tell their stories and share their stories. And a lot of people were saying to me, I've never shared this with anybody else. And I would say, shared it with me now. So somebody else in the world knows. And that's so important for people that, that for everybody, it's important, but especially when you've gone through abuse, it, it's important that somebody else knows. How was that experience personally for you as well? Because I'm guessing, certainly to a wider group of audience, the first show of that show would have been the first time you would have properly shared your story as well. How did you feel about that? It was the scariest thing I've ever done in my life because I remember the first audience I had was of six people who were... The Department of Education in New York ended up taking on the show and using it as part of their curriculum, which was unbelievable. But this was them coming to view it for the first time. And so I could literally see them. They were as close as we are. And but I could hear the sniffs. I could hear the, oh, my goodness. So I knew it was hitting where it was meant to. And, yeah, it was the most amazing thing that I've ever done with my life. It was the most tiring thing I've ever done, is being the only person on stage and going back to those places over and over again for nine months. It was tiring. It was, it's always, it's always, it always takes it out of me a bit to go back to those places. But, but at the same time, I knew at the end of the show I was ending up, up here rather than down there yeah that was my journey and it must have been quite motivating to get that sort of feedback on such a regular basis and know that it's having that impact on other people that are experiencing it yeah and it grew as well I had six people in my first audience then I went to a bigger auditorium and bigger and bigger and then went to 
was off Broadway Theatre. It was just it's being sold out all the time. And I was just like, what is going on here? It's only my story. I, I felt my st- I think for so many years I thought my story wasn't important. And suddenly I was like, no, my story is important and all of our stories are important. So I think that's really what the show did for me. It made me realise how important our stories are. So obviously for, for, for yourself, the, the opportunity to share that, to, to create your story and then to be able to share that story was both therapeutic but offered others some great help as well and maybe motivate or encourage them to disclose themselves. Since then, I guess you've been working with a lot of people and sharing your story and have heard from a lot of people. Just wonder if there's any um, advice, whether it's two, three bits of advice that you might offer perhaps listeners of this show that may be resonating with the story that you just told, where they might go to, to seek help for themselves. As I said, my way is not the way that everybody, you know, we all have our own different ways of dealing and coping, and but, but there are so many agencies and places out there that that you can go to and that there's different ways we at one in six they did an art art piece you know of people drawing their abuse and things like that so there's so many different ways that and agencies and charities that are dealing with abuse that that just look take the time to look and research and find what's right for you because yeah as I say, my way of doing it is not going to be the way that everybody, not everybody's going to write a one-man show and take it to the other side of the world. So, yeah. <laughs> but they should, if they <laughs> yeah, can, if you'd you can, recommend it. If you can, yeah, exactly. I always say there's so many ways of expressing yourself, and whether it be art, dance, music, you know, what, whatever it is, skateboarding, it, it, it doesn't matter as long as it's a way for you to be able to, 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 to put your put what's happened into something else that's what i think i tried to do put my pain and what happened to me into something else something more positive i was i, I read an article recently about about the synonymity if that's a word synonymity between grief and loss and love and hope and almost the, almost the requirement of one to exist mm-hmm. for the other and in order for you to truly love if you like you need and have hope you need to and it's a different thing. It's a different thing. You need to know what it is that you're grieving or that you've lost. And it's a different thing in your, your story a little, but it reminds me of it in that, that you've experienced this trauma and these events, but are able to use that energy. What I'm blown away by is the fact that you've been able to use that energy in such a positive and creative way. And it wouldn't be possible without it, if that makes sense. Yeah. You talked about the value of disclosure and certainly your way of disclosing, which, like you said, wasn't, isn't necessarily for everyone. Yeah. I guess for some people as well, perhaps listening to this, the idea of disclosing to anybody might still be some distance off. And you mentioned earlier a little bit about the process that you followed of kind of un, unbricking that wall, that defence protection that you'd put up. What they like brick by brick, and that being quite a long and, and quite challenging process, but one which ultimately unleashed you a little bit and gave you your way forward. I just wonder if you've got any thoughts or reflections, advice, listeners, as to how they might start that process or where they might turn to in order to seek some support in that kind of unbricking process. I think telling someone is, for me, it was one of the hardest things, and I'm sure for other people who've been through similar things, it's so hard because of all the shame, all the guilt, all the embarrassment that comes with going through what I had been through. And so 
it's really it it's a really difficult thing to do but it's a really important thing to do and and finding somebody that you trust that that you know you can talk to is often the first way the first the first step of opening that door on these secrets so finding somebody that you know and that doesn't have to be you know I've heard of people talking to their the people that cut their hair, things like that. So it's not all about, oh, you've got to go and see this person or this person. But also there are so many counselling services and things out there as well. So yeah, there, 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 there's a lot of people, there's a lot of, of services out there. It's just being ready to, wasn't ready for a long time. Eventually I became ready, but it, it just took time. Do you remember the first person that you disclosed to? The first person I disclosed to, yeah, was the friend that I'd been out with that night. Yeah, so that was tough. How long did that take? That was after my HIV diagnosis. So it was, uh, so I didn't, when I got raped, I didn't say anything for six months, even to the people closest to me. But then when I got, when I found out I was HIV positive, it kind, that kind of pushed me a bit, made me go, oh, I've got to tell people and I only told the people very closest to me but yeah that was when it started. So where has this all led to now? Where are oh, you where man. do you yeah where do you find yourself now in the work that you're doing? I did my one man show and then that ended and then I kind of was like what's next what's next and what what I ended up doing was starting a YouTube channel called Heart Talks. It gives me a chance to continue telling my story, but it also allows other people to tell their stories. So I've had some amazing guests with all talking about all different subjects. So that is that for me is therapy in a way as well, knowing that I'm continuing to do something that is helping others. So I do that. I am a positive voices speaker for Terence Higgins Trust. So I go out into schools and I talk about sexual health and about young people taking charge of their sexual health, but also being aware that things that rape happens to men, you know, and that's been really powerful going into schools and talking about that because kids have, a lot of young people have this idea of, oh, it doesn't happen to me. And I had that thought as well, to be honest. I always thought it's something you read about in the newspaper and it's always somebody else. So going out into schools and talking about it and and talking about living with HIV is something that yeah, it's a, something that really gives, as, as much as I give to it, it gives back to me a lot as well. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, actually, as well. I talked about how sometimes the opportunity to the YouTube channel, the opportunity to hear other people's stories, to share your story, etc., offers you an ongoing kind of means of therapy, some description, you know, but self-therapy. But how do you look after yourself? You know, how do you keep yourself strong, keep yourself positive, etc.? I think keeping busy is a good thing for me and and giving back. And I know it sounds really giving back is a very cool thing to do, but it, it makes me feel better. It makes me feel as if I'm doing something and that I've got that that my story has a purpose, that the things that happened to me happened for a reason, you know. Um and I'm making something I'm making something positive come from something that wasn't a positive situation at all is a very negative situation and I just I want to change it um, and that's what I continue to strive to do and that keeps me going that keeps me trotting on that's wonderful so what about the future for you future I, I would love to I would love to it's always my dream to get back into the West End I, I did to show Bombay Dreams in 2003 
2004 in the West End. So that was amazing. So I always love, would love to get back into that. But, but yeah, uh, a little TV job as well wouldn't go amiss. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Just watch the space. <laughs> Thank you ever so much for joining us. It's a genuinely inspiring story i'm sure lots of people i mean lots of people have taken a lot from you i suspect over the years and your story in any case but hopefully we can reach even more people now and and, and your story and how you've come through that will inspire many others as well so thank you so much for sharing it with us thank you we hope that you took something from today's conversation we know it can sometimes be a difficult listen but the one in six uk we strongly believe that by talking and sharing your experience things can become more manageable. If you've had an unwanted sexual experience or know someone who has, please refer them to One in Six UK, a website where people can get information and support in taking their first steps on a healing journey. Mm -hmm.